You're listening to The Lube, an audio series about the mud, microbes, and mammals in the Gulf of Mexico. I'm David Levin. We need to understand when a spill occurs, who's at risk? How long are they at risk? Dana Wetzel is a biochemist at the Moat Marine Laboratory in Sarasota, Florida. She's leading a new experiment that'll help her understand the effects of oil spills on fish in the Gulf of Mexico. It all starts with a tank the size of a swimming pool, about 20 miles inland from the coast. Stay tuned. Driving east of Sarasota, Florida, the landscape changes fast. Strip malls and office parks give way to quiet farmland and live oak trees dripping in Spanish moss. But crops aren't the only thing growing out here. In a small cluster of buildings tucked along a gravel path, a team of scientists is raising thousands of fish. Hey, Kevin. How are you? All right. We're getting going. We have a hectic start, but we're getting there. So what's first? You will see. We'll get you indoctrinated in here. Kevin Maine is the director here at the Moat Aquaculture Park. It's both a commercial fish farm and a research lab, a jumble of pipes and tanks tucked into long aluminum-sided buildings. Normally, Maine looks into new ways to raise fish for food, but today she's helping figure out how an oil spill might affect adult fish in the wild. After the Deepwater Horizon spill in 2010, many fisheries across the Gulf were closed for months, but it's not clear if that oil had a long-term impact on the species living there. And that's what Maine and her team are hoping to find out. We can go out and test animals and determine that they're safe to consume. And that gives you one piece of information that allows you to reopen a fishery. But what we don't know is what is the effect on the next generation? And what are the long-term impacts that will affect the breeding of those animals off into the future? Studying how oil affects the way fish breed is a challenge. Only adult fish can reproduce, and a lot of important commercial species in the Gulf are huge when they're fully grown. Just two or three fish would take up a tank the size of an oil drum, so growing them in most labs, which have limited space, isn't really feasible. Here at Moat, though, it's a different story. So it all starts here with the breeding systems. Maine leads me to a tank that looks like an above-ground swimming pool. Inside, gigantic fish are circling slowly. And so these are adult red drum. They're huge, aren't they? They're almost, what, three feet long, four feet long? Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. And quite a good girth on them. I mean, look at some of those girls there. Maine is raising hundreds of fish like these from three different species, pompano, flounder, and red drum, which is also called redfish. And the reason we wanted those three species is they not only represent uh, important recreational and commercial fisheries, but they also represent three potentially different types of exposure scenarios that could have happened. This is Dana Wetzel, a marine biochemist leading the research. She says the three fish live in three different environments, and each one is affected differently by a spill. Pompano, for example, live in open water, so they're mostly exposed to oil droplets under the surface. Then there's redfish. And the redfish is a more coastal fish. So in a spill, they're hit with contaminated water and contaminated food. Because the redfish are going to be picking and feeding along the contaminated shoreline sites. And finally, there's flounder. They spend most of their time in silty bays. They live in the sediments. Which means they're exposed to oily water, food, and mud after a spill. Wetzel is planning to recreate all three settings here at Moat and put each one through a simulated oil spill. 
The goal is to get a better understanding of what the oil really does to those species in the wild, and whether its effects stick around long after a spill is cleaned up. Of those that survived, are they perfectly happy and normal? Uh, I don't know about that. Because right now it's the adults that are, you know, in charge of reproduction. So if we are impairing adults, maybe we're impairing them for one season. Maybe we're impairing them for life. We don't know this. To find out, Wetzel and Maine are systematically exposing the fish, a few at a time, to oil. In nine small tanks, pompano are put into oily water. Redfish are fed oily food. And eventually, flounder will go into oily sediments. The group can only work with a few fish at a time, and today it's redfish. That means South Louisiana sweet crude is on the lunch menu. In a back room, biologist Matt Resley whips up a new batch of food in a disposable metal pan. It's a pile of smooth brown pellets, each about the size of a pea, and they're coated with a thin sheen of oil. After we've top coated everything, it is a little bit darker, but you can see it's pretty porous. Oh, it looks like my cat's food. It basically is. Purina actually makes fish food. I did not know that. Yeah, it's all made the exact same way. Resley has been feeding this stuff to this group of pompano for more than two weeks, and today's the last day the fish will have to eat it. Now the moat team needs to determine if the oil had any effects on the fish, and there's only one way to do that. They'll need to euthanize them with a heavy sedative, dissect them, and send their body parts to the lab. A bunch of labs, really. Scientists around the country are partnering with Moat on the study, and each one needs a few tissue samples. All right, next up on our hip parade is removing its internal organs. See all this, this uh, white uh, material right here, right under the skin? Yeah. That's fat. That's a fat little guy. Dana Wetzel and a few biologists are already working on the latest batch. Right now, I'm uh, dissecting out heart muscle tissue, and that, along with some other tissues, are going to be sent to um, our colleagues down at uh, Texas A&M University. So how many different people do you have with a, a stake in this fish? Uh, I would say a dozen people at least are working on, on this one particular fish right here. Some will look at bile samples to see if oil compromised its immune system. Others will test its blood for toxins, or comb through samples of its liver, kidneys, gills, muscle, reproductive organs, even microbes living on its skin. All the pieces of these deconstructed fish go into hundreds of tiny glass jars, and eventually into the mail. So, as you can see, this fish has contributed a lot to science. Over the next year, the moat team will repeat this process with hundreds more fish, spanning multiple generations. The team is already seeing that fish exposed to oil aren't reproducing as well as fish kept in clean water. But right now, they can't say for sure if that's due to the oil or if it's just a fluke, so to speak. 95% of all commercial and recreational marine species spend part of their life in the Gulf of Mexico. It is such an important area. This information should be able to help decision makers, managers decide, you know, how long should we close an area? What sort of mitigation strategies should we attempt to do? Unless you have the information to know how you may have damaged these organisms and for how long, you know, you can't make those informed decisions. Regardless of how the study turns out, Wetzel says that understanding what happens to fish during an oil spill is essential for knowing how to respond to disasters like Deepwater Horizon in the future. 
For The Loop, I'm David Levin. Funding for The Loop and for Sea Image is provided by grants from BP and the Gulf of Mexico Research Initiative. The Loop is a production of the University of South Florida.